0: Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello again, fellow human. Today, I'm bringing you part two of my conversation with Beatles historian and the world's leading authority in the Beatles, Mr. Mark Lewison. In today's conversation, we go deeper into some of the issues we covered in part one, but we also get more into Mark's work habits, how he actually gets work done. We get more into some serious Beatles nerdery. (laughs) We talk a lot about Liverpool and his experience of that city uh, and a little bit about my experience of that city. Basically, if you're interested in the Beatles, and also if you just want to learn from someone at the very top of their creative field, I think you're not going to want to miss this conversation today. A quick note before we get started that, as always, subscriptions, ratings, and reviews are absolutely critical for a show success, especially in these early days. So if you're enjoying this show, if you want me to continue making new episodes, please be sure you subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. Without any further ado, here's part two of my conversation... With the world's leading authority on the Beatles, Mr. Mark Lewison I'll start there. Could you talk a little bit about your um, views on interviewing or not interviewing the Living Beatles for this project, and where, you know what are you thinking as far as that goes? Um.
1: I mean, I would be up for interviewing both Paul and Ringo, given the opportunity. Um, the opportunity is, is not available to me right now. Um, but at the moment of me saying this, um, Paul McCartney is 75, soon to be 76, and Ringo is soon to be 78. And um, you know, they're not 25, 26, 28, or 35, 36, 38. They're well into their seventies, they're closer to their eighties and they've had very full lives. And I, I think the, the value of what they can give in interviews is diminishing. Uh, and I say that not in any way to uh, insult them because it's just nature and life, the cycle of life that affects each and every one of us, whether we're famous or not. So um, it would be good to ask them certain specific things but just about two weeks ago from the point of me saying this I emailed a couple of questions to Paul um, specific uh, I won't go into the detail but asking him to uh, say a word or two on the record about a couple of people that they met along the journey Um, and they would be people that he remembers I'm sure important people in, in their time and he elected he gave me a he was gracious enough to reply which was gratifying in a sense, um, but he didn't want to engage with it. And I think one of the reasons could be, and I'm only guessing here, but it could well be that he really doesn't remember them very well anymore. It's it's a long, long time ago. So um, the value of interviewing people of age is, is naturally a, a diminishing one. I spend a lot of my time still trying to find people who were 1st hand witnesses to events, uh, and the quality of the interviews that I'm able to get from them when I do find them is, is noticeably less now than it was when I began this project 15 years ago. Um, there's a big difference between interviewing people who are in their 60s and interviewing people who are in their 80s. Um, yes, they might remember knowing someone or being somewhere with someone. But when you actually, you know, as a writer, that's of no particular benefit to me. Yes, I remember them well, okay, I'm writing a book about them. But in terms of what occurred at this moment, this episode, what do you remember of that that incident? It's gone. So I don't know if this is answering your question, but the, the key point to remember is that the people are, that I'm writing about may well be among the planet Earth's most in, interviewed people ever. And although a lot of those interviews – from my point of view, have left something to be desired because the questions they are asked are not the kind that elimi- that, um, that bring illuminating answers. Um, at the same time, they have been interviewed so many times well uh, in periods of their lives when the moments they're describing were much closer to than we are now and therefore fresher. Um, I can use all of that. And I am using all of that. I mean, I have vast amounts of first-hand Beatle reminiscences to use, very few of which were ever heard by anybody at all. But even if they were, it would be so long ago they don't remember. And now they can be used in context. And I, I will, of course, always attribute where every quote comes from, um, which I think is part of the transparency of this. So um, it's it's regretful that I, I can't get to ask Paul and Ringo the, all the things I would like to ask them, but I'm not so sure h- how valuable it would be. Uh, I, I honestly could say <clears throat> that what I would value most from Paul and Ringo would be them allowing me access to pieces of paper that they've kept. And then maybe we could talk about them together. That would be of great use to me. Um, that would you know, be I think in, in engaging and fun for them as well as for me, but it would also educate me. Um and that's that's what I'm after. But at the present time I haven't got that access either.
0: Of of all the living Beatles, I guess we can kind of i George is not living anymore, but you knew him um you you had occasion to meet him personally before he passed away. He's living
1: some He's living can- somewhere.
0: Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs>
1: We miss George. Well, he believes he would be, and and I I go with that.
0: Yeah, that sounds good to me. I'll I'll go along with that, too, for sure. I was interviewing uh, Sylvie Simmons. I'm not sure if you know her. She's an English um, rock writer. She wrote a masterful biography of Leonard Cohen called I'm Your Man, which is another of my favorite uh, music biographies. I was interviewing her, and I was asking her about the extent to which she's able to, to a certain extent, detach emotionally from her subject so she came to this project as a massive leonard cohen fan Uh, leonard cohen had a massive impact on her life and i'm always interested to to talk to people like you as a massive fan of the beatles one who grew up with them from an early age who has i would imagine a lot of you know to some extent some emotional attachment to them how are you able to detach to a certain extent from what you're writing about Uh, As part of that question, I'm also very interested to know what it was like for you as a younger man Meeting the Beatles for the first time like meeting um, some of your idols for the first time. What was that experience like? Um, Well,
1: to answer the first part um, Detachment is not difficult for me at all. It just is a matter of I think the author's personality Um, I have been passionate about the Beatles all my life uh, and a big part of that passion is the discovery of knowledge um, and that's really where i'm at now i use the passion to 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 maintain my energy on the project because by the time i'm finished it'll it's going to be 30 years or thereabouts since i began and it is almost entirely all i do i mean it's 99.99% of my life Um, for 30 years on top of many prior years of of research and engagement in projects. So so I use the passion to to maintain my energy levels and to um, ensure that I I don't flag. But I'm not in any way seeking to um, just write a hagiography and, you know, weren't they wonderful and here's why. Um, I've said this before, but it really comes down to the fact that, in my view, the Beatles stood for truth and that they can best be served by a a, a piece of biography, a a piece of uh, work like this that is utterly truthful in every line, in every sentence, uh, in every paragraph and chapter, every page. So, um, it's honoring them by getting their story as accurate as possible and truthful as possible. And that includes the bits that aren't so nice and aren't so wonderful. And, and, and will make people think, ah, oh, I didn't know that about them. Oh dear. Um, because we all have those in our locker. And, um, but, but the point is, um, you know, Albert Goldman made a a speci- speciality of researching his subjects thoroughly and deeply and well, and then writing about one side of them only, um whereas i'm looking for balance i'm looking for um the complete picture and there's no doubt that this is an up, a happy and uplifting story but populated by people who led extraordinary lives including some moments that um you know we all have but nothing's going to be left out if it's germane to the telling of the story so i am able to detach entirely from the passion and my interest in it, um, to simply being that of a narrator of some of a historian who's gone out there, found every piece of um, information on detail and color that can be found, and puts it down to see the story that it tells.
0: But at the same I'm not time, leaving anything: If I can interject momentarily at the same time as an outsider looking in, it, it seems very clear to me, and I find it inspiring that it seems that your passion hasn't waned for this subject since you began this project all those years ago. It's, it's, it's impressive.
1: Well, thank you. Um, it hasn't waned at all. In fact, it's, it, with everything I learn, the kind of the, the layers of appreciation just accrue. And that's, that's gratifying for me because I'm, I've am i never reached the point of going, Oh, really? How, how uninteresting, you know, how boring <laughs> of, of me. Um, of me gaining a kind of sarcastic relationship with the subjects I'm writing about. I don't I don't need that. I mean, I, I I'm just a realist. It's just we all have a, a set of skills uh, in our lives and and my set of skills. It just so happens are suited to doing exactly what this project requires. And that includes a sense of detachment and um, Uh, a desire simply to write the truth, no matter what that truth is. Um, Because overall, the story is going to be the story of the people who changed our culture. And that's got to be a good thing. Tell me Um, about
0: meeting some of the members of the band for the first time. I'm curious about that.
1: Yeah. um, Well, I never met John Lennon. Um, I didn't meet, I've met Ringo so briefly that I can barely remember it, let alone him. Um, i met george on a handful of occasions which were very much mixed in terms of their enjoyment level for me <laughs> um from the very good to the to the really shitty um and i met paul on many occasions because i had a working relationship with him he hired me for many years to do work for him which i think is one of the things that spoiled my relationship with george to be honest mm. um it seemed quite clear to me at the time that the two were linked um, but George took against me for reasons that were wholly unfair and, and actually, in every sense wrong. But he believed it. He he had his truth. Um, I respect the right for everybody to hold their truths. However, in his case, it was it was ludicrously unfair, and I had no right of reply. Uh, and that is being maintained against me to this day. It seems, from what I can gather, by his widow Olivia who I don't know. Um, She doesn't know me at all, but because George had a problem with me, I think she's maintaining that on on his behalf, perhaps. Um, You know, a half hour over a cup of coffee would change a lot of things, but I haven't had that opportunity. Paul was good from the start with me. Um, We got on well. There was mutual respect Um, which is why he wanted to hire me. And uh, I was privileged to go to a number of parties and recording sessions and video shoots and all of that, not because I was a friend, but because I was hired. Um, But he didn't mind my company. That's the point. And and it was good. It was good. But even that came to an end, as most things do. So I haven't actually seen Paul for quite a while now. Were
0: you, I mean, what was it like meeting some of these people who I I imagine you kind of, you know, were icons to you for a long time? Yeah,
1: well, I, I, apart from this sentence in which I'm about to use it, uh, I, and and here it comes now, I never use the word icon. (laughs) Icon, iconic, it's all so massively overplayed that I had this thing that you will never see those words in my books. Uh, And I tell the people who are working on my books that we can't use icon, we can't use legend, uh, and quite a few other modern buzzwords. Um, I needed to get that off my chest, excuse me. No, not at all. Um, But to me, um, the first time I met Paul was very special. It was 19, well, I'd seen, I'd been to concerts and things, but the first time we actually shook hands and all of that was 1986 and my first book had just come out and he really liked it so he wanted to tell me how much he liked it so it was an easy conversation to have um i've never been in the position of having to impress them as it were um you know when you've got 20 seconds and you want to say something truly tremendous that they don't forget um they're actually used to that that's kind of part of the daily life for them and has been for half a century um so if i was fine I was cool. I I was, you know, I've always been a professional in, in, you know, if I'm there as a professional, I behave professionally. Um, I'm a little lighter in tone than I used to be. I used to be more serious as a person than I am now. Um, but you know, they, they, they were fine with me and, and kept me employed for many years because I was obviously giving them what it was they were looking for in terms of delivery of work. Um, and with George, um, I, I really I thoroughly enjoyed meeting George. It, it was a potentially fraught situation because he was uncertain about meeting someone who was deemed to be a Beatles expert <laughs> because his own, his own character and personality was, well, who are these? I've never even met this guy. How can he be an expert on my life, which I completely understand? Um, but when we did me it was good and the first time i met george um i was there to interview him it was at a film studios in the handmade films period and he was running late from the previous interview he was doing a, an afternoon of interviews and i was like you know the penultimate one in the list i think and uh but as ever with these you know with rock stars you can find yourself waiting three hours you know before after the appointed time but he was great he came out and said look i don't have time to do this now everything's been overrunning, but we could go for a drink if you like and so me and another guy uh also named mark mark ellen we jumped in george's car and he drove us around to the bar on the film set on the film studio lot and um then we went for a couple of beers, which was great. I mean, it was just great to be sitting at a table having a couple of beers with George. We got on really well. I, you know, it, it was just natural. So when I actually did the interview with him a few days later, it was like we knew each other. And he was nice to me from that point on until I really started working for Paul. Um, and then he kind of just took against me. And the last time I saw him, he was really quite unpleasant. But that doesn't affect me in any way in any way whatsoever with what I think of George and the way I'm going to write about him. That's that's the two are entirely separate things.
0: Not Mm. to drag this on and, and feel free to, uh, to pass on this question, but do you have any sense of why George, you know, why your relationship with him soured? Do you think it's simply because he felt that you were prioritizing Paul's interests
1: over his? Well, his relationship with Paul post Beatles was a, well, No one really knows it except for the two of them. But um, it was a strained one. Let's put it that way. And I shall be if if I end up writing what I hope will be the fourth volume in this trilogy, um, then I will explore some of that. Because George's relationship with Paul, which predated his relationship with John in as much as Paul introduced him to John um was definitely a strained one right through until george's death which is you know a big chunk of time and i think i just got caught up in the eddy of that in some minor way i know that during the anthology there is reputed reported to be and i haven't seen it um some film from the anthology where the cameras were running and paul and george were discussing me and paul was saying that i was a wanker and and uh, sorry george was saying i was a wanker and paul was saying no mark's all right mark's all right and in the end paul got his way because i was employed on that project but it wasn't it was against george's wishes to a degree there were some trade-offs on the anthology whereas you know paul could bring in so and so and george could bring in so and so and ringo could bring in so and so and i was one of paul's um and 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 indeed it it went through and it was a happy project um but um george had a thing about experts um one of the unpleasant times i was with george was this sounds like i'm name dropping and i don't mean it to but it was at george martin's house in 1992 we were filming the making of sergeant pepper TV documentary, and I was consultant researcher on that, whatever. And um, George Harrison assented to do an interview for it and came over to I was hoping we'd do it at Friar Park, but he said he'd come over to George Martin's house, which was great. He came over in his Porsche and we hung out in George Martin's house for a while, which was very nice thing to do, except that he was unpleasant to me the whole time, George and um he tested me he he said if you're an expert you know uh he pointed to a picture in a book and said who's that man an indian guy who was at a beatles session and funnily enough i'd been at a beatles convention in la a couple of years earlier and someone had come up to me and said um the man in that photograph who you don't you don't know his name um his name is, and he wrote it down on a bit of paper, and I stuck it inside the book. And so when George said to me, if you're such an expert, who's what's that man's name? I was thinking, oh, God, I was trying to visualize that piece of paper. <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> and I, I couldn't remember the guy's name. And it was a guy called um, Omir Dasgupta, who I now know quite a lot about because he's an interesting fellow. And he was at the sessions and indeed lived at George and Patty's bungalow for a couple of couple of months, I think, in that period of time. Um, and I think played on Within You Without You as well. So that was the answer. But, you know, um, not not a very cool thing of George to put me on the spot like that and kind of make that the acid test of whether I was an expert or wasn't. But, you know, he was playing with me. And, you know, the, the thing about famous people is they always think they've got the power in any relationship. And, um, and because because we other mere mortals kind of give it to them and if if i was with him now i'd think i'd just tell him off (laughs) you know yeah yeah um because why not why not but you know that
0: those things happen sure and i mean going back to your point you made about not using language like legends and icon and i I completely agree that they're very, very overused. And I think the danger is when you use those words too much, particularly if you are you know, doing a project like yours and still using those words, you forget that there's a human underneath all of that. You know, all, all of the, the labels we're throwing at them, you forget that there's a man yeah. under there, you know, with petty jealousies and insecurity and sometimes he's in a bad mood or, you know what I mean? It's like you lose the, the person, I think, if yeah. you use that language.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It it kind of reduces everybody and everything to the same level. And once it's in the hands of advertisers and media and and people who want to big up whatever it is they're doing, then it just becomes everything becomes iconic. You know, iconic building, iconic hamburger, iconic pizza, iconic, you know, footballer, whatever it's like, what the hell It's utterly devalued. And so... Uh, you know it reduces the beatles in a sense of the same level as i don't know um whoever <laughs> whatever other artist is iconic so um no i it's it's not about that it's about it's about just understanding the storyline that's really what it's about and recognizing human beings and their decision making and their creativity and and the sometimes extraordinary connections that, that that people can have in their lives.
0: Right, absolutely. Let's talk about Liverpool a bit. I, as I told you when we last met, uh, I'm recently enamored of Liverpool. I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I was absolutely struck by the magnitude of Beatles tourism uh, going on in that in that city. I mean, it seems like everywhere you look, Someone's hawking something to do with the Beatles. There's a tour being offered, uh, which is paradise, you know, if you're you're a Beatles not like me. But you said something very interesting in our last meeting. You said that, if I recall correctly, that that really started to take off in the years following uh, John Lennon's uh, murder. I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about your relationship to the city and how you've seen
1: that city change over the years. I first went there in 1977 um, and it was a pretty sad place to be. Um, Liverpool has had a, a, an arm's length and, and usually quite hostile relationship with central government in the United Kingdom, in, in England particularly. Um, it's always been treated badly. It's always been the last in the queue, the last in the line to get whatever help uh, a, a struggling industrial city needs and um, the story in Tune in is essentially I mean it's a 20th century Liverpool story in which that goes up to 1962 in which the city really has some quite desperate times in terms of unemployment and, and poverty and standard of living, quality of housing and so on. Um, and when I went there in 77 it was really it was in the midst of another of those bad downturns. And um, the cavern had been knocked down in 1973, only four years earlier. And I longed to go in the cavern. And it was bloody well gone. I mean, how utterly ludicrous that a city would demolish something as important as that so quickly after it had all happened. It seems absolutely insane in retrospect. It was insane and needless as well. It was it was needless a in the moment of it of its um, plan because uh, there were, an alternative could have been found if there was a, de- a desire for there to be for it to be found. But b I, I, I'm not even sure that the once the thing was demolished, I'm not even sure that it was it was found to have been necessary. So um, it, it was it was going through a bad time, and I was. Young and inexperienced and fearful of things I didn't know. And, you know, it was a city where you could get beaten up if you looked at someone in the wrong way. Or so it seemed that was the the reputation that it had. So I I kept to kind of kept myself very quiet and together on my first few trips to Liverpool, but eventually began to explore it more boldly when I was writing my first book, The Beatles Live, uh, because it was a list of all the uh, live engagements the Beatles had had from the Quarrymen Skiffle Group onwards. And that meant a lot of knocking on doors and seeing what papers people had. And I went to Liverpool a lot then and got progressively more comfortable with it. But it it really um, maximized when I was doing tune-in because I went there so often, something like 25, 26 times, often for a week at a time. And I developed a network of friends there Um, To the extent now where no trip to Liverpool is complete without seeing A, without seeing B, without seeing, you know, if you're in town yet, you know, go go and see them. So the the city now is is a place where I have no fear. Uh, I walk and take photographs because I like taking architectural photography uh, in all the areas where whose names are associated with fear i walk in the dingle i walk in toxteth i walk in old swan i walk in everton i walk in anfield i walk in birkenhead i walk in walton and Gattaker, and i walk in uh, garston and all these places where you used to read about you know fights and so on and undoubtedly in the period when the beatles were growing up it was a risky edgy place to be uh, i don't find that anymore and um I really do enjoy going there, and I observe it as well as an outsider. Um, and undoubtedly, it's had to embrace its Beatles connections to a degree that actually is more than many of its of its citizens would want, because the citizens have a, a delightfully scouse view of things, uh, which very much inform informed the way the Beatles thought about life. And um, I mean, for example my research tells me research for volume two tells me that by the time we get to 1965 66 the beatles were pretty strongly disliked in in liverpool um and were and became and became aware of of how strong that was through a number of newspaper pieces that were pointed out to them or that they read and things that they heard from family members and so on they were kind of kind of um, Hated up there, believe it or not. Whilst being loved everywhere else, it was Liverpool switched on them because there were a variety of, of complicated psychological reasons that I'm going to have to explain. Um, and that kind of met, was maintained, which is why the cavern got knocked down because it wasn't deemed to have had any any value. That's interesting. 1973. It-
0: yeah, because now I mean you know you fly into John Lennon International Airport and you I was thinking about the economic impact that that band must have had on this on the city over the years. I mean I'm sure it's incalculable. You can't imagine how much revenue that the band has probably brought in for the city. And just continuing on this on this theme for a moment, but also speaking a little more generally, when I was walking around Liverpool and visiting some of these sites and seeing you know all of the the Beatles related activity and and vendors and stuff. I started thinking about Elvis, and I started thinking about Graceland. My impression is that the Elvis industry, if we can call it that, is on a downward uh, trajectory. The value of Elvis memorabilia is uh, seems to be going down in a lot of cases. There's less, <laughs> thank God, there's less El- Elvis impersonation. I love Elvis, but the impersonators, it's a bit much for me. But anyway, um, it seems <laughs> to be going down. Um, I think I read, now this could be wrong, I'm fairly certain I read that that uh, uh, ticket sales at Graceland are actually going down. And I wondered if there's a risk of that happening with the Beatles. Now, it seems to me, you've been around on this rock a hell of a lot longer than me, but it seems to me, even in my own lifetime, it seems that interest is only going up. Um, but do you think there's any risk of, of that kind of situation of you know, uh, after the fact, Beatlemania, if we can call it that, peaking and then things kind of going down. Do you, do you see any parallels
1: there? What, what do you think about that? Um, you can never predict the future, but the logic alone would tell you that um, in 50, 60 years time, when no one who experienced the Beatles firsthand is still alive, and therefore all appreciation of, appreciation or knowledge of them is in the hands of of um subsequent generations um that it will shift it has to shift and and how it shifts is is the unknown factor um but it will have to shift to some extent in some direction or other and it could be down um it it might just be strong in a different way um but one would have expected it the thing is one would have expected it to have diminished by now right and as you say it appears not to be diminishing it appears only to be holding its ground or even gaining ground um so that could never have been predicted so the prediction business is a risky one i mean i take i take the listener of this back to 1956 where all the predictions were that this rock music this rock and roll will be gone tomorrow um and when the beatles came up it will be you know what do you i mean the question they were asked so often at press conferences and in not just then but interviews of all kinds was when will the bubble burst you know when is this thing going to finish you know what will you be doing next year what what do you plan to be doing and so on that basis, it, it's it's clearly something that we sh- w- there's not a lot of um value to be gained from trying to predict tomorrow.
0: Absolutely. But it,
1: there will have to be a sh- there will have to be a shift of some kind. And um, I as far as if you wanted a prediction. As ludicrous as it might be, or it might turn out to be, I can see them they are the 20th century's shakespeare they're bigger than shakespeare sorry sorry monks i didn't mean it <laughs> um, they are bigger than shakespeare um in the sense that um they're more popular than shakespeare more people know their words than they do shakespeare's words shakespeare didn't write such great melodies um shakespeare's haircut wasn't quite so good you know and all of this They are the 20th century's ultimate cultural uh, contribution to to the to the human race, and um, therefore they have their place forever. Um, And that's, in a sense, why I'm writing these books. Another reason why I'm writing these books, because if they are to be read about and considered in a couple of hundred years time, if mankind is still on this planet, um, let them read something that gets it truthfully right. And let their knowledge be based on accuracy rather than inaccuracy, because that will be the best understanding that people could ever have of of, of how amazing all this was.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and I think you're you're right. I don't you know, for me I don't think it's overstating things to say to draw parallels with Mozart and Beethoven. Like, is interest in Mozart's operas going down? Well, I'd say no. Is interest in Beethoven's symphonies going down? No. And we're talking two,
1: three hundred years no, after the fact. Yeah, they're they're not. Uh, but I would add, add to that sentence, uh, as well as agreement. I would add to that sentence that the B- Beethoven and Mozart are still kind of uh, some kind of some kind of an elite preference or an elite enjoyment. Um, it's not the man in the street. They don't really. You, they could they could go and sing you a Beatles song, but they couldn't necessarily give you one of Mozart's works um they know he's a composer they probably know he was brilliant because they've read it um or or it's it's in the in the in the common knowledge but the beatles are actually still within people uh, in a deep way so that's why i'm equating shakespeare because shakespeare is you know absolutely established as the benchmark for centuries century upon century and will be for as long as we're here but um, how much do, of the work do people really know? And um, you know, lots of people do, of course, millions. But but I'm talking about percentage of population. So yeah, it, it is extraordinary how long it's lasted. But one of the reasons I think is because, well, it's all all of the, they they they're still big for all the reasons that they became big in the first place, which was that they were fresh and bright and young and and exciting and innovative. And they made sounds that engaged the human ear that the human ear had never heard before. And um, that, that still maintains somehow. Who knew the music could, could be so good for so long?
0: Yeah, well said. I, I'm looking at a question I have written down for you. Um, and the question is, what are some of the things you think people often get wrong about the beatles what are the main narratives you're trying to challenge and you can take that question however you want but i realize when it really comes down to it i want to talk about yoko (laughs) um (laughs) the the, the one that pisses me off the most is yeah the one that pisses me off the most is i mean if you read which i don't advise by the way but if you read youtube comments yoko still gets a lot of hate from beatles fans you know you're the one the devil woman the witch who broke up the beatles and some some comments that are far far worse than that i don't see that at all i think at the end of the day you've got four extraordinarily interesting extraordinarily strong personalities and one little collective something's going to break sooner or later you know I, I, I think it's it's not fair at all to lay that lay the break of the beatles at yoko's feet what do you think about the break of the beatles does that narrative kind of get under your skin as well
1: Uh, pretty much all the narratives about the Beatles get under my skin. I think, I think almost all of them are wrong, uh, headed um, to use the old fashioned phrase. I think increasingly, uh, I'm speaking into 2018, but increasingly in the past five years, the more knowledge I've acquired, the more I've realized how the general knowledge is not right. And, and the, and the assumptions built on that knowledge can therefore not be right. Um, and I, I i go back to what i've said about tune in because it's true for the entire project which is i'm not setting i didn't set out to dispel any myths i simply set out to to start again with writing this history uh, and in so doing hundreds of myths just kind of fell away and that will certainly be the case of books two and three i don't think that people understand the Beatles very well as people. I don't think, I think their, their work has been studied to an enormous degree. And with that has come obviously deep inquiry into, into the lives of these people. Uh, and in terms of detail, we have a lot, but in terms of understanding, I think we're light. And, um, I, I intend to, to address that one full on, um, in which, And in doing so, um, Yoko becoming the love of John's life will become much more. um, As it was for the reader and and how it was was natural. It was a man meeting a woman. It was a one. It was an artistic soul meeting another artistic soul and finding a soulmate. And um, it was it was a. um, an extraordinarily creative performer in John Lennon, a mind that was really most unlike anybody else's, um, with few exceptions. I mean, he met in the Beatles, he had his peers, but not many people in life think or thought like John Lennon any more than they did about the same you could, you could say for Paul and George and, and Richie. Um, and that is that um, when he met Yoko Ono, he met someone who utterly inspired him. He met someone who liberated his uh, his his artistry uh, in a way that he wanted it to go. And. Um, her effect on the Beatles. Is obviously one that needs to be looked at. But but let there be no doubt that she was there at John Lennon's request, insistence if he had said, don't come to the session tonight. Because it's going to upset the others, she wouldn't have gone. I mean, she was not insisting, inserting herself into this. She was there at his bidding and he could see the effect that her presence was having on on their chemistry. And didn't stop it. It was something that they would have to adjust adjust to, he thought. And indeed, an, an adjustment was made. And it was one of a great many things that that you could tip into the hat of why did the Beatles break up? But it isn't the only one.
0: Right. And I think when people say that, too, it's pretty insulting to John. I mean, it, it you know, it, it, there's the implication that he had no agency there, which, as you suggest, was is absolutely well, wrong.
1: Yes. It's like, I love you, John Lennon, but I hate the woman who you called the love of your life. Right. Doesn't quite matter. Well, that's up. a strange one. Right? Yeah. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, the internet is uh, the internet is is, is, the, is is everybody in the world having the right to broadcast Yeah. right <laughs> yes and, uh, and, and you know you can, you can see a comment and, and become freaked by it um, and of course there is massive amount of hatred a massive amount of racism and bile and vitriol of all kinds um, all horrifying really uh, and it certainly includes attacks on other individuals absolutely know? i mean is and yoko gets it yoko gets it but you know if you attack her you're attacking john
0: do you read your your critics do you engage with some of the negativity that that comes your way
1: well um engage with it uh, I don't get much negativity. I'm pleased to say, uh, I get a lot of positivity, which I, I really do appreciate. Um, and, uh, I mean the books, the work I do and the books I do are such overwhelmingly strong, positive forces in the sense of that is, you know, I I'm looking to project positivity, not to the extent of changing the story, but I, you know, I, I do believe in glass half full and, um, so the books generally are well-received because people tune into the positivity. Um, you know, Albert Goldman, and I, I don't mean to, to malign the man's reputation any more than others already have, but it's an interesting thing. I, I'm sidetracking myself here. I've had the opportunity to go through Albert Goldman's research notes. And Albert Goldman, who has a, a reputation for dishing the dirt on the on the subjects of his biographies, um, was a much more impressive researcher than I ever realized. And, 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 um, um, really in, in extraordinarily thorough in, in the way he went about his work, but then he used that material in a, in a single dimension. And I'm, you know, so those books are negative for me. Uh, and my books are positive in that it's got both sides, <laughs> you know, positive and negative. Um, I'm slightly twisting myself with words there, but I know what I mean. Um, so what, 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 where exactly did that question begin? I was just uh, curious. I guess
0: it's on my mind. I was just watching uh, an interview with the rapper Kanye West, which was quite entertaining. But he was basically saying that he doesn't really engage much with the negativity. And I've heard a lot of oh, other yeah. people yes. uh, say that as well, where they just artists and authors well, yes. and creative people, they just won't read I, I the see. negative
1: comments. So I get very few negative comments, but when I do um, I, yeah, I just disregard them or I shout at them or something like that. And then I move on. (laughs) They're not not going to, they're not going to affect me. Um, But, but really there are, there are few of them. Most of the negative comments I get are people who think I'm in some way uh, um, um, dragging my heels in writing this project, you know, this three volume history. Um, but that's just, uh, they don't know. That's as simple as that. They don't
0: know. So my last question, I'd like to ask you a question about writing. In my last interview with you, when we were talking in the British Library, I asked you a question about interviewing. And you gave some uh, some very useful tips about how to conduct better interviews, especially face-to-face interviews. I'm looking at you now mm-hmm. in what I assume to be your office. Uh, mountains of books yes. behind you. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the absolute mountains of research and documents and files and photographs and all the research you compiled for example for tune in for the first volume of your biography what is your process like when you actually sit down to write do you have any best practices do you schedule certain hours of the day every day what is your writing process like when you actually sit down Mm. to
1: put pen to paper so to speak The, um, I've, I've been in the gathering stage for a very long time on this project, and it's as I've mentioned, it's still it's still pouring in at such a rate and of such a quality that I, I need to I need to allow it still. You know, well, in fact, I'm never going to stop it, but it, I, I need to make that my main focus. The next step will be looking at everything I have, assimilating all of it. And making a structure from it, putting together a, a, a series of documents that that uh, that enclose all the information that will be useful to me when I'm writing this chapter or that year, or whatever it might be. The whole of the next book will have a framework um, and it will have an order of things in that I'll go from that to that to that to that to that, you know, in any one chapter there might be 200 touch points that i need to include that i need to include that i will order them in such a way uh, and i did this did this with tune in as well i will order them in such a way that the out of one becomes the in of the next one so seamlessly that the reader doesn't realize it and and the beatles story and 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 the way that i'm able to analyze the information that i've found is just such that one can do that it can actually be done um so i'll have natural bridges that go from each of the sub subjects to the next one um and at the end of all of that i will write it um and in the writing i'll see the areas where i need to go away and dig a little bit more or i think i've got something on this somewhere i need to go and find things you can't anticipate that you will need um, but in the moment of creativity, then you realize what 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 it needs to, to work. And then I will write the chapter and that could take anything. Depends how long it is. Some chapters are short and some are long. Uh, and the long ones take little time sometimes and the short ones can take a long time. But at the end of each Friday, at the end of each Monday to Friday writing period, I will print out the work i would take a re i will take a red pen to it and over the weekend i will mark it up you know cross things out move things around um introduce more levity into the text if it's required um, and then i will implement those red marks into a revision uh, and i will keep revising uh, I, i'm not the kind of writer who goes back and makes mass changes but the problem well one of the ramifications of writing a story in this linear fashion is that you realize in when writing chapter 15 that you'd better go and make a change to chapter two where that person is introduced because you need to accommodate the knowledge you know that we're going to have later so there's a lot of that kind of fine tuning that goes on but i don't do mass rewrites and then it's printed out and it's done
0: why do you is there a reason why you physically print it out Uh, And actually, you know, have that tactile element, like actually holding it in your hand. Why not do that in the computer?
1: Oh, I mean, one is endlessly proofing on computer anyway. Um, But there's something about seeing it on paper you know, maybe it's my age, um, but I, I do think that if, any, if anyone listening to this is a writer, uh, I would recommend printing out and reading it. Uh, go into go into another room, go and sit in the garden, go and go and go and have a pint of beer, uh, whatever it might be. Just go and sit with a pen in some other place, and you will see things that need changing or don't need changing, as the case may be, in a new way. I think editing on screen is, is um is is a second is second to printing out and reading on paper.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's very in all disciplines.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For, by the same token, if I have an important approach I need to make to somebody, I will write a letter, a real letter, print it out on paper, put it in an envelope and post it. And I think it carries a lot more weight than an email. I completely agree. A real letter in 2018 still still packs a punch. Uh, it's It's something that people open and they've got it on their desk and they put it to one side and then there it is again. They look at it again. They can show it to someone. I think it has a lot of weight.
0: Absolutely. I've kept every single physical letter I've ever received. I cannot say the same about every email I've received. <laughs> And, and postcards. People yeah. love postcards, even in 2018. I mean, people. It really means a lot to people. You know, it's nice. We 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 miss that sort yeah. of tactile experience with words.
1: Yeah, I keep a box of postcards right by my desk here, and occasionally I'll just fish one out and scribble it and send it off to somebody. It could be a joke. It could be anything. And the Beatles' story is full of postcards loads of postcards i mean ringo did a book postcards from the boys in which he reproduced the postcards he'd received and kept from john george and paul um and how illuminating they are to look at now you know a major contribution ringo made to our history and our understanding of it right there with that book um which is why i say i'm more interested in seeing what they've got than what they remember because if he just showed me a box of postcards and I hadn't, they hadn't been in the book, they would all tell me something important.
0: And if I recall correctly, there's a funny story associated with that. Like he just found this box of postcards and negatives, I think, in like a random box in his house or something like that. Like it was almost lost forever. I think it was his
1: mother. I think Elsie, Elsie kept it. Uh, he also did the second book with all that stuff as well, um, Photograph. And there was a Grammy exhibition, a Grammy Museum exhibition in Los Angeles uh, with that stuff. So I'm all for that. I, you know, it, I think it's high time that the Beatles did an exhibition, a great, great exhibition. Um, you know, We've had the Bowie one, we've had the Stones one, we've got, in this country, we've got the Jam is touring at the moment as an exhibition. My goodness, the Beatles should have an exhibition.
0: Absolutely, because there's so much uh, cool memorabilia I, 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 and stuff
1: I, associated with them. Massive amounts, yeah. massive amounts. And I'd love to see them open up their stuff. You know, I mean, when we were on the anthology, there was still some politics going on. Uh, you know, um, we were asked, I say we, it was George Martin, but I was pushing him to ask them to open up what they've got. You know, let us if you've got acetates and if you've got tapes, this is the project. Please share them. And But there was still the stuff of, well, I'll give one if he gives one. And, you know, if he gives one, I won't give two um and you know these things happen It's their lives you know it's not just some historian asking for something it's it's their lives it's their relationships and i understand that but um yeah i think it's time i want it all out now let's get everything out there every single thing should be out there and available now and and my entire archive will become publicly available sometime oh wow um i'm fully intent on that yeah it's not. I mean, I'm I'm learning, but it isn't for me to hang on to. It belongs to everybody. It belongs to. It belongs to those who wish to look at it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't. Have to, I hope I don't have to tell you if there's anything I can do to help with that project. I hope you'll let me know because that that's that would be amazing. That'd be really great.
1: Well, uh, if anybody listening to this is interested, I'm I'm open to e- applications from libraries, from university uh, academic places. I'm open to. Um, any free thinking. I'm open to free thinking on how the Beatles and all popular music can be this can be um, curated into uh, a working repository of information and archive and enjoyment. And the thing about that would be because I have so much that is directly from the Beatles. I have you know tens of thousands of recordings of interviews, of video, film, of letters and contracts and everything like that and um if an art if if it's the truth that an, and it is of course that the artist wants to communicate with the public directly with as few filters in between as possible, then putting all this stuff into a place where people can hear it in times to come will be the ultimate, really, because it means that someone won't be quoting somebody else talking about paul mccartney they can go and listen to paul mccartney's own voice and have it directly from him His, he he won't be dead in respect none of them will be none of this can be um, and this is true for everybody in culture basically but certainly the beatles are, you know this archive is vast and and it, it it's it should be out there i'm using it now for the writing of these books but when i'm done it's everybody's
0: yeah. Well, I'll await that with, uh, with eager anticipation. That
1: sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Mark, thank so you so any, much. Yep. Anyone listening me, I'll just say anyone listening to this, who has a, an idea for, that might further that, um, someone with some funding, someone with an, uh, a building, um, please come forward.
0: And what's the best way to get in touch with you on that, on that note?
1: Um, I'm not, I have a website that is just so atrocious. I never even look at it. (laughs) I mean, it's it's deep embarrassment to me. I haven't updated it ever um, since the moment it went live in 13. Um, But there, but it's www.marklewison.net. If somebody out there wants to give me a better website, I'll I'll listen to that idea as well. (laughs) Um, I want want to start putting content up there. I want to, you know, but I haven't got time. I'm writing Mm. books. So, there's only a limit, to how, a limit to how much I can do. Um, but there is a, a, an address on that. Um, and so if you go to www.marklewison.net, because somebody took the .com and didn't use it, thank you, .dotnet. <laughs> um, .net, then there is an email address through there, and I can be reached.
0: Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being so generous with your time over the past couple of weeks. It really means a lot to me. And, uh, yeah, thank you for making time for me today. This was great.
1: A uh, pleasure, a complete pleasure.
0: Well, there you have it. One of my favorite people to talk to, Mr. Mark Lewison. Again, his website is marklewison.net. Uh, his very ugly website, apparently. <laughs> it's not that bad. I, I, I looked it up. I don't think it's that bad. And his book is called Tune In the Beatles All Those Years. Be sure to pick up that book if you haven't already for a real treat. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, It's so great to be doing this again. I can't tell you how much I missed podcasting and it's nice to finally get out of my own way and be launching episodes again. A quick reminder that if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like me to keep making new episodes, please go to iTunes, be sure you subscribe and leave a rating and a review. And another reminder that you can find information uh, about everything we talked about in today's episode. You can find links and show notes and and bonus content at humansinlove.com. Thanks again for listening, guys. Be sure to have yourself an absolutely fantastic day, night, afternoon, weekend, early morning, uh, hungover Sunday. Whenever you're listening to this, I hope it's really good. And remember that life is short, so enjoy yourself. I'll talk to you again very soon.